What's up, everyone? This is Trey Van Camp, and you are listening to the Ministry Podcast. The first thing I want to talk about is the there's a difference between with the church mentality, either it being a home or your hotel. And um, hotels are fantastic. I love it because I don't worry about the water bill, and I just love cranking it super hot. My wife doesn't know how I do that. I, like, burn my skin when I'm in the shower, right? And, like, I get the towel, and I throw it on the ground, and I feel great about it. My wife doesn't even bother me that I did it, you know? And, like, I just – I love it. Room service, I've never done it except, like, once because somebody else was paying for it. But even just the idea of having that is quite nice. Like, a hotel is super nice. Um, If you go to the right one, could be terrible. One time we got bed bugs from a hotel. Fun Ooh. fact. Always check underneath. Um, so anyways, but um, we weren't designed to live in a hotel uh, long term. Like if you talk to people who travel, they're like, oh, they no longer see hotel as something nice. Like, you know, you don't go to hotels often if you're like, yes, hotels. Right. Because that shows you're not living that traveling life. Uh, mm-hmm. And. And yeah, and the things with hotels, it's nice for a season, but when you look at a hotel, it's to use and abuse, and you are being served, and you've paid for it, it's your right. Um, but a home is much different. A home, you pour money into it that maybe you'll never see back. You do things, you're constantly upkeeping it, you're inviting people over, uh, you serve it. So in a hotel, you are being served, which we enjoy and like the thought of, but a home is something that you're constantly serving, constantly investing in. Uh, you're, um, there's even, I think, something therapeutic about mowing your lawn, about cleaning up the garage and just feeling you know, that satisfaction. Because the reality is hotels can be nice, but we weren't designed to stay there. And if we view church as hotels, what we do is we go there for a little while, we enjoy, get everything we can out of it, but then we go to the next one, and we're constantly looking to be served somewhere else, and we're looking, and it's never, and, and honestly, I think there, there's a definition called church hopping, because it's never satisfying. You go to one place, and if you view it from a hotel mentality, that church will run out, right? Those new towels and those new amenities, that continental breakfast, it's the same breakfast again. So then you're going to start going somewhere else. But a home is something where you flip it and you invite people over. I've always said, I've never invited people over to my hotel room. If you do, don't tell me about it, because you know what I mean? That's awkward. But like in homes, you invite people over all the time. It's totally different mentality. And with church, if you view it as a home, you invite people to it, you serve it, you invest in it, and it's something you're committed to long-term. My freshman year in college, I viewed church as a hotel because I was a pastor's kid that had to, every single week, be there always, had to set up, tear down, be there, the first one's there, the last one to leave. And so I was like, freshman year, it was like freedom of like, wow. And what's kind of cool about Southern California, there are tons of churches to pick from and a bunch of famous churches and a bunch of small churches. So I just tried all of it. Like I was overindulging in different churches. So it's not like I wasn't going to church, but I was going to every church. And I kind of hated that I could only go one per weekend because I was like, ah, weird pastor, right? So I was like, yes. And and part of it was healthy, I think, to kind of get a, a broad view, like what do different churches do? I've been in one kind of scope my whole life. Our freshman year, we had to go to six, they made us go to six different churches that were dramatically different than the other. We went to one that was in a strip club um, on Sunday nights and then another. You didn't go to that one? 
<laughs> well, it wasn't a strip club during that. Not a strip club, like a bar, but there's some sketchy stuff that happened there. But anyways, uh, it was a really cool church. Um, not for the, uh, for good reasons. <laughs> and yeah, it's just a building. Exactly. They're renovating it. Um, and so then we went to like a super, like you had to dress super nice. And it was like a three hour long service. Anyways, I recognized I started to not like going to church and I started to feel tired. I started to feel, oh, I just have so much else going on. And I was like, how come I'm doing this? I realized it's because I'm not actually serving a church. And when you go to church to get served, it just feels there's a dysfunction there and it just gets tiring. It gets in a weird way. It gets exhausting going to a church that you don't serve. And I never really believed that until I experienced that myself freshman year. Because I always thought, you guys are lucky. You just come, and when it's over, you leave. But I realized, wow, I'm actually the lucky one because I love church. Like, I love the things that I'm getting out of it. So we have to ask ourselves, are we viewing church as a hotel where we are served or a home where we serve? And usually we veer away from the church because we doubt its structure, we misunderstand its purpose, we have an over-individualized culture, so we don't like being tied down. I know I talked a little bit about authority last time, but let's look specifically at membership and leadership, and hopefully that it's a home, it's a home that you serve. Um, like you mentioned, uh, we're going to look at membership most specifically, and some churches don't have membership at all. They say it's more organic, like, oh, we know who's a part of our family. I think that works uh, for smaller churches because you just, you do know, um, but for you to leverage and get larger, there comes a point where you don't. There's a huge church I know in SoCal, they initially didn't do membership, kind of the lead pastor style was like, let's not be organized. And then they had to get a huge piece of property and building. And with the bylaws that they had in place, they didn't recognize like, oh my gosh, we need members to vote for this. And we don't have mem-. It was a crazy, crazy scenario that happened. And like you said, they didn't want just anybody to vote. They wanted those who they know have been serving and committed because Joe Schmo can come in the first Sunday. Nay, you know what I mean? And just ruin everything. So, um, so some people don't have it at all. Other, there's so many different models. Some people say, okay, come for six months. We're asking you to sit at our church for six months, don't do anything. And then after six months, then we'll allow you to, to join as a member and then you'll start serving. And there's some healthiness there as far as some people jump in too soon. And, and then when they jump in too soon, they leave just as soon because they reckon, oh, this isn't the place for me. And it usually uh, really hurts the church because, oh, now we have a service spot that's gone. Now people are asking, why did they leave so quickly? There's just a lot of stuff like that. Other people say, okay, you can become a member. All you have to do is take one class. It's just a quick overview of our church. And if you sign and approve, you're done. Other churches do like 12 classes where it's like you're going through an entire book together of theology, ecclesiology, or even touching eschatology, like this whole thing. And are you on board with us? I'm somewhere in the middle where I think it is healthy to um, have several meetings and talk about different things. Um, other people say the membership is getting baptized in that church. So the day you got baptized is the day you became a member. And there's something biblical about that because baptism is not just an allegiance to the Lord, but it's also a, a, a prof- profession of, hey, I'm a part of this family. Keep me accountable. I'm serving this family. There's something to that. Um, it's all over the map, Okay. And some people, again, it's just everywhere. It really depends on your leader. Are they administrative or are they, they don't even know what that word means or something in the middle um, and leaning in those different directions. So we're going to look at tonight, what is membership and like, how is it a blessing? So I think we see in scripture, there are references to membership. We see it in 1 Corinthians 12. 
We see it elsewhere, uh, like in Ephesians. We see Ephesians 4, this beautiful picture of people joining together. And it's through all those different offices, all those different um, giftings that make up the church and build us into the mature body of Christ. So people have argued forever on what it is, what it isn't. Now I'm going to talk about what it, what it gives us. What does it do for us? I think the first one that I think a lot of us underestimate, and I think my... It's, oh, it works now. Uh, membership gives the blessing, gives us the blessing of covenant community. Covenant community. We have covenants. This is something as a culture we don't really understand, right? Marriage covenants, we're just like, ah, oh, that doesn't really matter. We'll just, we'll, we'll get rid of this whenever we need to. Charles DeWeese, he defined um, this covenant as a series of written pledges based on the Bible, which church members voluntarily make to God and to one another regarding their basic moral and spiritual commitments and the practice of their faith. That makes sense? So a covenant. So what we do at our church when you become a member, you also sign a covenant. It's just a promise to each other. We're going to care for each other and we're going to stick to God's word and we're keeping each other accountable. Um, 16th century Protestants, particularly Anabaptists, which by the way are, since we're Southern Baptists, we come from the stream of Anabaptists. If you want to study something interesting, study the Anabaptist movement. It's incredible. Literally, we talk about today how like, oh, why get baptized? It's not a big deal. The Anabaptists literally were killed for their faith because they, they would not, um, they, they made them say, hey, tell us that baptism isn't important. They're like, no, you have to, like, you need to get baptized upon professing your faith. And that was a really big deal. Um, and they're willing to die for that truth. Which for us, we're like, meh, right? It's just really interesting how much we've changed. Uh, so Anabaptists really were convinced that's what Scripture said and to do it. Scottish Reformers, shout out to them and their beautiful accents. And, um, and England separate... Is my wife not doing a good job of holding the fort down? <laughs> Oh, nice. And England separatists uh, and congregationalists, uh, all these people, they started using church covenants. And um, it continued in popularity. So I say the 1500s to the 1800s, these foundational documents, if you're part of it, you sign the church covenant and you agree to the statement of faith, which we as Baptists, we have the Baptist Faith and Message 2000. Okay, so, um, but nowadays we don't really have covenants. We don't really have membership. It's not nearly as prominent. I think it's because uh, we're constantly vying for other people's members of local churches. Like, hey, just come to our church. You, know, you don't need to go to that one anymore. And, and there's a bit of a struggle there. I want us to see there's a difference between contract and covenant. And with membership, it's more of a covenant. Contract is based off like the fine print. What are you going to do for me? We need to make sure we have this agreement. If you, uh, if you mess up, I'm out. But covenant is based on friendship. It's a decision that we're going to love each other through it all, uh, no matter what happens. And there's something beautiful about it. I was just listening to a podcast, a secular podcast, and they were, it was just so sad to me that they were jokingly saying, man, the minute you do this, we're divorced. And they were like, yeah, totally. And it was just like so sad. I'm like, there's no trust and intimacy and love in that marriage. It's just like you're not experiencing the joy you can. Same as the church. If we're not like just so utterly committed to each other, the amount of things I've heard, even just in our own three years, what people leave over is just so stupid, right? It's just yeah. pathetic. 
And what's really hard is, first of all, it hurts the ego of like, oh, man, like I thought you loved our church. I love my church. Uh, but the other thing is like, I feel bad for you because if you always leave the moment there's any friction, how are you going to grow? Like, how are you going to move forward in your faith? So covenants are really a commitment of that. Like, we're going to grow together. Um, covenants are used I, also, I believe, to like uh, keep us accountable and practice in the ways of Jesus. God time, gather time, group time, go time. It's really our responsibility as we go back to deacons, elders. Um, it's our responsibility if there's somebody in the flock who is veering away from the practices and, and going into the things of the world too much. We have to, as leaders, approach them lovingly and say, hey, we fear you're leaning too far in this other direction. We love you. What can we do? Let's lovingly bring you back into the fold. What's happened? A lot of times, you know, we need to just assume the best and be like, is there something going on that we just don't know about? Like, can we help you? And uh, sometimes you're surprised. I'm, I just regret not doing that more as a pastor. I've seen people start to veer off and I think, ooh, I don't want to be too, you know, overbearing. I don't want them to think I'm like this attendance police. But it seems like nine times out of 10, when I don't say something, it gets worse and worse and worse. And then they're far off. And it's not like they're just not going to our church. They're not going to any church. And it's really sad. And I think it is our responsibility as members to help each other in that and keep going the right way, right? The, the narrow way. Any questions on that? That's a covenant. So everybody has a different covenant. Like in the Bible, there is no like have these in the covenant. But we kind of just use our wisdom and kind of make up a covenant. So what we've done, we've looked at covenants that other churches have done, and we just kind of adopted that and used our language that we have as a church. So that's one reason. So you can't really, to be in a covenant community means to be a member. That Like you can't sign a covenant and not be a member. So that's integral to being a member. Some people, by the way, don't use the word member because they think of like the country club and all that. I'm not, I think we just use membership, but I've heard people say ownership which isn't a bad idea. Have you heard any other kind of phrases before? Um, ownership's the one where I'm like, okay, I get it. Like you're invested. But I also think sometimes we're just trying to be too cute. Uh, other people use the phrase adopt adoption. Like let's have an adoption service. So you're now in the family. So yeah, I'm, I'm adopted into this, this church family, which is pretty interesting. Um, the next reason that we do, um, we use membership. Why isn't it working? You just click the next there. Oh, now it works. Every time I say so. Okay. Membership gives us a blessing to use our gifts. So when I, my freshman year, I, I went to a bunch of churches and I finally started going to one, but I didn't become a member. And because I didn't become a member yet, um, they didn't know my giftings and I didn't know where they needed service. So it was this weird, I'm here, I'm trying to get to know people. But membership's like the best way to where a part of our membership process is here are the areas of service we need. What do you feel like is some of your giftings? And let's plug you in there. Um, I think service takes intentionality. It takes, hey, what do you do? Here's what we need. Hopefully we meet somewhere where both of those uh, boxes are checked. Um, so I just think we serve to a greater degree. Maybe um, people are like, oh, but I serve people when I go there. But I think we serve to a greater degree when we're there for the long haul. We truly know what people need. Uh, we always say, if serving is beneath you, then satisfaction is beyond you. So this is actually a blessing to us. When you use your gifts, you guys know the parable of the talents. If you use your talents, God gives you more. If you don't, God will take even that away. I think um, my belief is I think uh, you're immediately, when you receive the Holy Spirit, you have spiritual gifts. But you, when you use them, I think God gives you more. Not a guarantee, but there's a high probability he gives you more as you use what you have. 
versus he gives you more even though you didn't use the ones you already had. Any questions so far? Cool. Um, do I just need to complain about it and then I'll go to the next one? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> oh, now you went too far. Too far. Incredible. Getting it's getting real weak. My uh, daughter keeps oh. playing with it. So, blame the kids. Uh, membership also gives us a blessing of church discipline. What is your first thought when you hear church discipline? Attendance. Okay. Yeah, discipline is in following a plan or discipline is in I'm going to spank you. Uh, yeah. Right. You find the term. Oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> no, yeah. I'm disciplined if I go to the gym every day. I'm not. But, um, but I can also Okay, that's not the word. I'm, that's not the phrase. Yeah, I don't want to say spanking, but more in that direction than okay. <laughs> the other direction. Okay. We can use that twofold. I think it does give you dis- the, the right kind of discipline as Service well. Servant series, boom. What? Servant Ser- series. Yeah, right. Um, so discipline in this term is actually... I, I like the phrase, I use the word church discipline here because that's historically what people say. So it's good for you to know, like if you ever hear that phrase, this is what this means. I like to call it church restoration to where somebody has been going off and we're trying to restore them back to the family. There's a process that is needed for that. In fact, if you have your Bibles or anything, go to Matthew 18. We're going to look at that a little bit. Here's a few quotes I found interesting about church discipline. Edmund P. Clowney, he, I read his book, um, a couple years ago, it's literally called The Church. He has this quote in it. Summarizing the true marks of what a church is. Uh, the true church needs, needs the true preaching of the word, proper observance of the sacraments, which are, do you know what the two sacraments are for us? Baptism and the Lord's Supper. Perfect. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. As well as uh, faithful exercise of church discipline. So to Edmund P. Clowney, for you to be a church, you have to exercise church discipline or you are not actually a church. John Dagg, he says, when discipline leaves a church, Christ leaves with it. I think that's pretty profound. H.E. Dana observed, the abuse of discipline is reprehensible and destructive, but not more than the abandonment of discipline. So the abuse of discipline is terrible, and usually when we think of church discipline, we think of the terrible side of it, and we try to avoid it. But if we avoid it altogether, it's even worse. Matthew chapter 18, um, we see Jesus himself lay out a plan for church discipline. And again, I, the reason I'm talking about this with membership, if you are not a member, then I don't have the right to call you out. You're just coming and going and whatever. But when you become a member, it's like, okay, now I really am accountable to your soul. We as leaders, elders, and deacons are accountable, and we have to do this. Um, Verse 15, if your brother sins against you, go and rebuke him in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he won't listen, take one or two others with you, so that by the testimony of two or three witnesses, every fact may be established. Let me just do a side note here. This is where I think having deacons is very helpful. Um, we would probably, if this type of issue, we would say, hey, deacon, uh, can you help us in this situation? So-and-so and so-and-so, they need two or three witnesses. Let's get some of our deacons together and let's see if we can just fix this now. Okay, so that, that is one of the reasons we want to install deacons. Uh, if he doesn't pay attention to them, tell the church. 
If he doesn't pay attention even to the church, let him be like a Gentile and a tax collector to you, meaning just a non-believer, especially Matthew here is writing to a Jewish audience. Truly, I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. Again, truly, I tell you, if two of you on earth agree about any matter that you pray for it, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there among them. We see a lot here in this passage. I think the first thing we see is church has authority over individual members. Look on this. That's what it's saying here. So if somebody is wayward, they need to um, eventually get to the point. Like we, we have the authority to say, okay, what you've been doing demands that we need to send people and try to uh, fix this argument. If not, we approach the church. Now, I think somebody mentioned before, most of the time what this looks like is if we've tried to bring somebody back to the fold and they refuse to, it is very likely they won't come to church and say, hey, yeah, I'm not doing what they want me to do. What we'll have to say is just, hey, you guys know so-and-so, here's the whole situation. We've approached him, we've asked him to repent, but he won't. So at this point, we are exercising church discipline. Um, As far as right now, he needs to know he's not a part of our family. We want him back, but there's certain things he has to do in order for him to come back. On Sunday morning, yeah. I think other people do, uh, they say, okay, member meeting only, member only meeting right after the church, and that's probably a more appropriate context. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's another reason why members are important. Um, I do find it, some people say it's a witness of, of letting everybody see it, like even if it's a first time visitor, it is a picture of the gospel. So some people say, why leave this to just the members? Let's do this elsewhere. Other people argue this is still kind of a private matter. This is just involves our church family and these people who have been so hurt by the church don't need to see on their first Sunday us sending somebody out. So there's side, there's both sides of the coin. I would say contextually, where are you in your city and context? If you're a post-Christian culture, meaning there used to be a huge Christian prevalence um, in the community, but now everybody's scarred from it, it's probably wise to do a member-only meeting. But if it's a brand new place um, and they've never, they ha- they're a pre-Christian culture, it might be wise to exercise, say, you know what, I think it's going to be healthy, especially with this certain situation, we're going to let everybody know. So that's, there's no clear answer here. So I think God gives us like that wisdom of, hey, you do what, what you do you, boo. I think that's what Jesus is saying. <laughs> um, Caleb next. I just, I quit. If I do this, can you just hit the arrow and it looks like I did it? <laughs> okay. Uh, the church has a responsibility to promote holiness in his people. So we could be lazy and say, well, that's just him being him, right? He's just going off. But instead he's saying, Go, if your brother sins against you, go and rebuke him. This takes practice. Why is the whole purpose of rebuking? It's not so that you feel better about the situation. It's because this person's in in a bad place. You need to rebuke him and bring him back into the fold. If you're sinning against your brother, not only do you have a not good relationship with the church, but you also, that person has a not healthy relationship with Christ. Is he saved? I mean, if he was saved, he still is. But there is a disconnection. There is a silence there. And we want to bring that back. Um, yeah, so repentance, that's what we're looking for. Uh, <laughs> so, Trey, I have a question. Go for it. So, you're, 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 you're disciplining someone, and it gets to the point where you're dismissing them from yeah. the fold. 
Mm -hmm. Is it our still your responsibility to try to get them back in the fold? Most Are definitely. You still going and and trying to meet with it and and still. Are so, you just saying we're done? It's case by case. I also have heard um, from church history and leaders and books. There is a healthy separation period where they need to know, they need to experience the ramifications of their actions. And there needs to be a point where to where it's finally like, guys, we need to take a step back. Let's give him space. He needs to figure himself out. You know, like the prodigal son, it took him going and sleeping with the pigs and then him coming back. So a lot of people use the prodigal son as a example. So, um, I heard somebody, even on the Love Thy Neighborhood podcast, there had to be this separation period for them to feel that separate. Because separation spiritually is already a reality, so we need to communicate that physically to them. It's that connection of body and spirit. But it's not a hateful spirit. It is not a um, forget you. And I think that's where a lot of people get it wrong. I hate using the term excommunicated because um, I think that's more of a hateful word. But I think it's, hey, like, like dis we're dismissing you from this, from this body. You're always welcome to come back, but we're asking you for do this, this, and this, though. If there's no membership, you can't demand any of that. You can't say you're gone. You can't do any of that. It's just, oh, he's back, and there's nothing we can do. You can use the police if they're, like, har harming people. Hey, there's a, you're not allowed here. We've written it up. What is that technically called? A, uh, um, it's a restraining order. Restraining order. So we can do that. Um, hopefully it never gets to that point, but it's actually gotten to that point here. And it was for the safety of children that were like, this person needs a restraining order. So, yeah, yeah. So um, that's a great question. Again, it's so case by case, but they need to experience in body what has already happened in spirit. So there has to be this. However, if this is like someone in the church, it's, it's their daughter. You don't separate from your daughter, you know, like hang out with that daughter and lovingly bring, you have a special connection that can never be separated and you need, you have a unique position to bring them back into the fold. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, the church also has a responsibility to promote unity. So that is the end goal. Uh, so not only does that person need to get right, but both need to get right together. So a lot of people, um, the purpose of the deacons getting it together is not just them recognizing they're wrong, but also them recognizing, okay, we're a family again. We, we appreciate each other. We love each other. There's no animosity. We're fixing this. And when we see each other again, it's not going to be awkward. Um, we're not going to try to make it awkward. We love each other. We're unified. That's one of the greatest examples we have here on earth is to show a divided world that we can still be unified. And what unifies us is the blood of Christ. Again, none of this can really happen if we don't have like membership. This is in my eyes. This is why I think membership is so crucial. <laughs> the church. Thanks, Caleb. The, you hate this. The church represents heaven on earth. In parentheses, partially. Uh, so there's a reason here that he's saying um, that we're, 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 wherever two or three are gathered, he's there with us. Also, we're talking about unity. We're showing us that we're showing the world that we're different. We're not like the Gentiles and tax collectors. We are believers who are redeemed and we operate differently. And this is a witness just as much to those outside of the church walls as it is to those inside of the church walls. And it's so hard for us in our cultural moment to, uh, in this cultural moment, it's hard for us to realize that actually exercising church discipline is showing heaven on earth to those who aren't a part of the church. But it is. And it's really important. 
the next one is the church is gathered. So we see here, this is a local setting. Uh, verse 20, they're gathered uh, where two or three are gathered together <laughs> in my name. There I am among them. I find this also interesting. Um, that's, how many of you heard that scripture quoted all the time? Where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am also. People misinterpret that all the time. Yeah, they, they say, I'm on the boat. I'm, I'm fishing on Sundays where two or three are gathered, yeah. right? I'm having church. Come on, Jesus, give me, me my fish. three fish. Yeah, three and my three fish, exactly. <laughs> me and my two dogs. Uh, where two or three are gathered in my name, okay? Um, other people, it's just like, well, we have to worship, but there needs to be two or three of us worshiping, and then God will be with us. You can actually have God with you alone in your car. What it's actually saying here in context is a, with... The main context of this is church discipline. When you are disciplining, but when you have it as a community, guess what? This is a very scary thing, but God is there with you and he is there to promote unity and he will take care of the situation. So it's a very comforting verse um, that Jesus is present among the church. He is with us. And I think that's actually why he says, uh, John Dagg, when di discipline leaves the church, Christ goes with it because we see the promise here is that when we do it, it is promised that Jesus is there. So if we don't do it, maybe you can see the converse. If I don't do it, then there is no guarantee that Jesus is with us because we see the opposite. Any questions on church discipline and then we can move forward. I already had good questions so far. I, um, I hate that as a part of um, what happens uh, in church, but I also don't want a, us to be a church that doesn't have Jesus. So we're just going to get through. And I honestly believe it gets easier if we have deacons and elders joining together, it's hard to fight any of these battles alone. And I think it's helpful um, for people who have been in different stages of life, um, even people who have been um, overseas. People have gotten shot at, right? Like some of you guys, like you've gone through some crazy stuff. It's good to lean on you guys um, on certain situations. So it's really helpful. Now let's talk about there's three positions in, in church leadership and how they all go together. The first one we have is, well, we have three different ones. So you have the lead pastor. The lead pastor has authority. Some of you maybe have heard it as senior pastor, right? He's our senior pastor. Doesn't necessarily mean his age. It just means his level of authority and leadership. Uh, people use today more often this phrase lead pastor. Um, it's recognizing that the lead pastor we see in scripture has the responsive, overall responsibility to minister the word of God and give direction and vision. So they are, um, at the end of the day, they are the one, there has to be people in agreements to him, but it's kind of like, hey, you're calling the shots to some extent. At the end of the day, it does, the onus goes on you. We see in Acts 20, 28 through 29, keep watch over yourselves and all the flock which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. So it is up to the lead pastor to take that responsibility to watch over himself and over the flock and the overall general, general, uh, general direction of the church. But then you have plurality of elders. We talked about this last week. Some people interpret this as a plurality of deacons, but we believe the elders are the ones that actually have like the commanding authority. Again, like we said last week, some of them are paid. Some of them, most of them are not paid. They lead the, the congregation in matters of doctrine and discipline. That's their main thing, doctrine and discipline. Uh, so Hebrews 13, 17, obey your leaders and submit to their authority. They keep watch over you as men who must give an account. Obey them so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no advantage to you. 
You cannot apply Hebrews 13, 17 if you're not a member of a church. If you have not submitted yourself under the authority of leadership, when you read Obey Your Leaders, you're thinking, I'm my own leader. I'm not submitting to anybody's authority. So that's why a lot of people, I think, don't become members because they don't want that, okay, now I have to follow what the Bible says and I have to submit to their authority. So uh, something to think about. So plurality of elders, they have authority that we see in God's word. And then congregation has authority. A lot of times, um, so, okay, congregations, they shoulder responsibility for acting as the final court under God in all matters of discipline and doctrine, which rise to that level of significance. Notice in Matthew 18, if it gets to the point, bring it to the whole church. Because they're the ones who have that ultimate authority. They're the ones, okay, we need to, as a whole, dismiss. We need to discipline uh, this so-and-so person. Mark Dever, he's like the king right now. Not the king. Um, he's, the, he's the chief. He's the whatever when it comes to church. He says this, uh, quote, The congregation's authority is more like an emergency brake than a steering wheel. I like that. So um, think about it. The congregation, they, you guys have normal jobs. You have normal lives. You have to take care of your family. There's so much normal church members have to think about. And if they just hear for two minutes the situation about buying a building or not, or doing this or that, it's hard for them to make coherent decisions. So a lot of times they have to just, okay, realize, okay, I'm trusting these elders as well who've done their research. I'm trusting this, this, and that. Some things like something, I don't know why I use building as an example. That is something they should probably vote on. That's something we would do in that situation. But they don't need to vote on everything because they don't know the whole story. In fact, we can't share the whole story most often because there's privacy matters and there's certain situations that other people don't need to know about their unique situation that that family is going through. So uh, that's something we have to recognize. Um, So congregational authority, some people, we'll talk about it, but some people go way over, some people go way under. We see in Galatians 1, 6 through 9, uh, the congregation's the one who has the responsibility to affirm true doctrine and also deny false gospel. In 1 Corinthians 5, also 2 Corinthians 2, we see uh, they have the responsibility of admitting members and also dismissing members. Uh, So they're able to say, no, this person's not qualified. Uh, They're able to call people out, essentially, through a healthy way of church leadership. It worked. Look at this. Okay, so with that, people uh, have different models of how they lead, and this is about how do elders, deacons, all this, how does this all work together? The first model that you see is single elder-led. Um, a lot of people, uh, Daniel Aiken, um, he's a uh, president at the Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. He argues that single elder is biblical. Um, so senior single elder led, it's, it's essentially it's getting to a healthy point when you establish leaders, uh, elders. It's a first among equals. So they're, at the end of the day, at this, there is a single elder that we're looking to to call the overall direction and vision, and then people follow. You mean one person? Like a lead pastor saying, this is where we're going, this is our vision statement, whatever. Um, a lot of this is very common, especially in smaller churches. It's like, okay, especially in new church plants, there, isn't, there hasn't been enough time to establish leaders in the first place. Um, there isn't just a lot of people. A missionary in a different context, he can't quickly put a board together or elders. It's not what we have. When we launched, I was still submitting to the authority of Heartcry Church's elders, but also in a unique way. Um, I was kind of the one saying, this is our vision statement. This is our logo. This is, you know, like there was nobody else to really consult with except my wife, you know? So that's just kind of like what we did and what we went for. Um, 
But with single elder led, they still have to submit to some sort of board uh, for various issues of doctrine and discipline. And um, what the single elder led does very often is in that structure, they have deacons and deacons follow the overall direction of that leader. And they help and administer and do that. Um, so oftentimes people establish deacons before elders. Elders is kind of a higher position. Deacons is a little bit more attainable as far as when you look at your congregation, there's probably more of them who are interested and are qualified to be a deacon than they are of an elder. So it's usually you establish uh, deacons. But a lot of times people just stick with deacons, never get to elders, and the deacons kind of become elders. So that's all sorts of dysfunction. Um, Congregation-led church, everyone has a say and a vote over most of everything. Besides, usually congregational churches, they don't tell the preacher, here's what your next sermon series is going to be, but they pretty much tell him everything else, <laughs> okay? And they hear about it after church every single Sunday. So no major decision can ever be made outside of a majority vote in this congregation-led and here, deacons usually play a way more prominent role, maybe not formally, but very much informally. If the deacons aren't happy, there's no way the pastor will get away with it because a congregation trusts the deacon more than the pastor, especially usually because the deacons have been there forever. Pastors come and go, um, usually because the deacons are so mean. And so <laughs> the deacons just tell them what's up. And that is a very true reality. And I don't think it's a really, it's a sad picture of the gospel. Uh, also, plural, plurality of elders led. I like this one the most. There's um, no room for a single leader in any season. It's multiple people. All decisions are made together. So yes, there are some things where we recognize like sermon series. Yeah, I think the person preaching that needs it. However, it's also, hey, elders, how do you think the overall direction of our people? What, what, do, what do our people need in this season? Is there a certain book of the Bible that we should go through? What are you hearing about? Hey, deacons, what are some things that we're struggling with? Um, is, is prayer something that our people desperately need right now? Is helping the poor? What is it, right? So they lean into that more. Um, my good friend, uh, I don't know if he's my good friend. I view him as a good friend. <laughs> Vance Pittman, a mentor. Is that a better way to put it? Vance Pittman, he actually says, he's like, I'm so confident that if God told me something, he'll tell my other leaders the same thing. So they never make a big decision at all without coming. They actually spend a lot of time in prayer and then write it out and just kind of say like, hey, what, what has God told you? And usually there's some unifying principle and they move forward with that, which I think is really helpful. And then still in the plurality of elders, um, that level of authority, deacons follow direction of the elders. So they say, hey, guys, what do you need? Awesome, I'm on it, right? What, who needs to be visited at the hospital? What kind of crazy scenario is happening? I'll be there and I'll help with that. Any questions on that? Some people, that's very boiled down into three categories. There's probably a lot more unique outside of those, but boiled down, it's, you can kind of fall into one of those three. Or just anarchy, which is probably congregation. Uh, <laughs> yeah, definitely. Depends definitely. on the congregation. Yeah. Because well, that, that kind of brings up something we have like in the military, like where leadership is trying to get something accomplished, and you have all the kids out there that don't quite understand why we're doing something a certain way. <laughs> right. So pretty soon you have the inmates leaving the asylum That's type right. thing. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Dave is experiencing that right now. Oh, yeah, I'm sure he is. <laughs> yeah, so you usually see congregation-led churches when that church has been there for a long time. 
you know? So it's like, who are you to come in and tell us what to do? One of the scary situations I saw, I was at a pastor's installation service one time and a guy, a member says, we're so thankful that we found a vision before we found a pastor. We knew our direction and then we found a pastor to fit it. And that guy's already gone. (laughs) So I was like, that is scary. So there needs to be this trusting of God. You've appointed this leader. There's a reason he's called our leader. He's going to lead us in a certain direction. I also feel for those churches that have had a new pastor every five years because they're like, oh, great, new vision statements, new colors of the wall, new, like they get tired of that, and I get that. That's why I think there's something about a pastor just sticking through it. They say it takes like seven years to gain their trust, if even that. Uh, My dad always talks about he's able to do more, you know, at year 12 than he ever could do at year two as far as different decisions that the church made. You just have to really just work at gaining their trust. Um, so now God also allows just different structures as far as um, you have house church movement. That is something we see in the Bible. We also see a corporate church where like what we do is where we actually gather in like a big location. It's, it's more than just a small house. Uh, God gives freedom for that. Uh, you cannot pull off a corporate church plant in Afghanistan. You will all die, right? Like you can't put print out posters and say, come to our church launch service. There's going to be something else launching around that same time, right? So uh, house church movement, like really quiet, that works. Uh, So God allows either way. Number of churches per city. uh, A lot of people wonder. It's honestly, it's to reach as many people as possible. So uh, some churches need a billion. I mean, you know what I mean? Some churches need a lot of church. Uh, some cities need a lot of churches. Other cities, it's so small, maybe four can do. It's just the wisdom of us is like, can we plant another one here? Or are we about full? Are we about tapped out? Is there no more schools to meet in? Is there, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, philosophy of ministry. Uh, God allows different types of philosophies of ministry. And so you as a member, you are deciding, am I adhering to this type of philosophy or not. So there's like a few, you have like the missional model where we're not interested in ads. We're not interested in a crazy, incredible service. What we're doing is we are meeting in homes. Uh, we're using hospitality. We are going places and just sharing the gospel. And when they get saved, then they'll join our family. Other people are very attractive model where it's like, no, everything's about the Sunday morning experience. We're going to blast that. We're going to put all of our money into the Sunday morning. We're going to make sure it's great. And it's going to be so great. People are blown away. They have to come back. Other people are missional first, but they also want an attractive. Other people are attractive first with a little bit of missional, you know, back and forth. I like to say we're a hybrid between the both. We really pride. We want our Sunday morning to be great, but we also know we very much fall short of the Great Commission if that's all we do. We want to do all the practices of Jesus, and we believe it's a very holistic. Um, but some people just straight up say, no, if you just have a great service, a lot of people will come, and that's how people get saved. So you as a member have to decide what p- kind of church am I going to be a part of. One thing I would warn all of us, we can't be self-righteous and think our way is the only way. Um, we have to realize there's different contexts, like what works in San Diego is dramatically different than what works in New York City. And we can quickly, even like, I'm getting so excited about us looking at these practices of Jesus. And I was thinking, man, we can't be self-righteous and think we've found it. Like, we're so much better. Every church who doesn't talk about pra- the practices of Jesus is just terrible. Um, that's not our job. That's not what we're out to do. We just say, okay, God, what you've called us to do. And I, us as members, we are excited about how he's uniquely called us. There's a book called Church Unique. And it's saying, as a church... What can you do that 10,000 other churches just can't? 
and just do that. So like for us, what makes us unique, we just believe God has called us to certain places, certain domains. Like we're reaching college students in ways that honestly in our city, college students aren't really being reached. So, so we're excited about that, right? Um, just different domains. I can go on and on about the different things that we're doing, but that's what makes us unique. And we believe that's kind of how God's wired us. So that's why we pursue that and realize that, man, there's already, like for Heart Cry, there's already Heart Cry Church. Let's make something a little bit different to reach kind of different people. And that's kind of the goal behind what we do and why we do it. And as members, it's just saying, okay, my, is my heartbeat behind this heartbeat? And I would say, instead of trying to change the pastor's vision, just go somewhere else, because maybe you'll find a church that has that vision, or just get over yourself. I don't know, either one, uh, but that's kind of the idea behind it. Is there any questions?